Morning, my name is Jerry. It's great to be here with you. So excited to uh, start off this new series that we're doing. It's called Hinges. And we wanted to use the motif of a hinge and these doors up here because that sends a message that we want to correlate with what we're talking about. And the message is this. Hinges don't move. They're secured. They allow for movement. They open doors. They close doors. But everything about that door and the direction of it hangs on something that is secure. And as we begin this six-week series on doctrine, we want to bring to you the idea that there is security in knowing the deep theology of God's word. Amen to that? Yeah. Well, I tell you, there were actually people that warned me to be careful about learning too much doctrine. When I felt like God was calling me to the ministry and I wanted to serve him, I actually had people that really warned me about even going to seminary. They called it, uh, you're not going to go over to that cemetery, I mean, uh, seminary school, are you? I was hoping to get a little bit more of a response from that, man. <laughs> Tough crowd this morning. <clears throat> no, but really, I mean, if you've ever been around some people maybe that are really well educated, maybe not even in the religious world, but maybe a college professor that, that knows so much information that they seem kind of aloof. Right, well, even in seminary, man, I definitely know what people are talking about. It doesn't matter what one you go to, but you're gonna find some people and maybe find some professors that have so much information and so much doctrine that in a sense, it deadens them. And that's what the warning was about. Hey, be careful, you know, you start getting into all that kind of stuff, you're gonna lose life and vitality and, and, and passion and zeal. I'll tell you what, I truly believe that knowledge is power. And the more we as a church understand doctrine and understand theology, that's really going to set us free to be that much more passionate and zealous for the things of God when we really understand who he is and what he's done. Well, this morning, I have been entrusted with the idea of sharing the theology of God. God is, is the title of the message this morning. And for the next five weeks from now, we're going to be tackling a different classic element of theology. And I hope that you'll be here for each one of them as we open God's word together. And I was just in the back and as we were worshiping and as I was thinking about sharing, I'm like, man, of the seven billion people on this planet, somehow I get the opportunity to, in 30 minutes, share with these people who God is. And all of a sudden, I really started to re rethink this whole entire idea of why did we do this series? This isn't going to work. How am I going to share who God is and give these people and capture the characteristics of this incredible being in such a short amount of time without it being trivial? As I was thinking about that this week, I wanted to bring a little bit of an illustration to you of how uh, difficult it is in our humanity to truly share that. So I've got a picture up here of myself and my lovely wife, Rebecca. She's sitting right over there. So let's just go ahead and take the ugly out of that picture. There we go, okay. So, so this is my wife, my best friend in the world, okay? I love her so dearly. I've spent almost half of my life with her by my side. And if somebody were to entrust me with the task that says, okay, I know you love your wife. I want you to show, I want you to explain to everybody how amazing and awesome and beautiful she is by painting a picture of her that will capture the essence and the reality of her beauty. If I was entrusted with that task, that would be really difficult, right? 
because you have to meet her, you have to know her, you have to be around her. Just you know, a one-dimensional picture that is drawn with pencil is not gonna do the trick. But you know what? I decided I wanted to try to do that anyway. So I gotta tell you, I didn't spend like two hours on it. I mean, maybe it was like 10 minutes. But I, I, I got that picture. I'm like, you know what? I want to try. I'm really gonna try as hard as I can to make a beautiful picture of who that is. And here's what I came up with. Here's what I came up with. <laughs> so I was freehanding it and I'm like, you know, I'm trying to get a little shadow thing going on. Kind of looks like she's got a beard on now that I look at it. Which it's a legitimate problem. I'm sure that there's ways to help that. But I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm comparing those two things. I'm like, well, you know, maybe there's an essence, a tiny essence captured. Like, I think I did pretty good on the eyelashes and the eyes look nice. Uh, the teeth are struggling. <laughs> I think we have a dentist in the house here. No. And that, you know, the nose is a, looks a little bit witch-like now that I look at it. And I was trying to do something with the shadow. It looks like maybe there's something there. It was supposed to be a shadow and the chin looks like Jesse the Body Ventura. And the head looks, you know, like it's terrible. Let's get it off there. But the point is, how difficult was that to do? Because I've got the tools, right? Like I had a pencil and I've got paper and I've got sight and I've got intellect, not a whole lot, but I've got all the tools that I need. And I really did try hard, but it still falls so short of the reality of the person. And this morning, what we're gonna try and attempt to do here in God's word is not that much different than that illustration. We've got all the tools, I've got speech, we've got intellect, we've got some level of training, we dive into God's word and I wanna try and present this to you, but it is still gonna fall woefully and dangerously short when you talk about the character of God compared to the true beauty of who he really is. But we're going to do our best here in these few minutes to really capture the essence of what is a doctrine of God. What does that look like? Now to start things out, I just want to share with you briefly four arguments for the existence of God. Okay, as we're getting ready to dive into it, just want to say, I don't know if there's note takers out here. Maybe sometimes you're note takers or maybe there's, I don't take notes. I just take it all in. You know, sometimes we just speak and let God's truth do the thing. Sometimes we get outlines up here to make it easier to follow along. This is one of those mornings where we've got lots of points up there. So if you are note takers or I would encourage you to, to, to capture that because we're going to be going pretty quick and we want this truth to continue to minister to you after our time here as part of church is done. But we wanted just to start out briefly by talking about four arguments, classic philosophical arguments of how we know there is a God. All right, maybe you're here this morning. You're like, of course I believe that there's a God. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm in church. I've grown up in church. I buy into all that. Great. Let this reinforce you and let this remind you of some good things that you can talk about with your neighbor or family members or other people that are not convinced. And maybe you're here this morning and you've had a lot of these questions and you're not really sure that you're buying into what's going on and who we're singing to and what this is all about. Well, hopefully God and his sovereignty will use some of these to really help you intellectually grapple with this idea of how do we know that there's a God? Well, number one, there's what they call the moral argument. The moral argument. And this is a argument of conscience. 
And what it means is this, if I went backstage and grabbed a hammer and went over here to my friend Scott and just started mercilessly pounding right on his knee with everything that I had, what would happen? Outside of him screaming like a little schoolgirl, what would happen? Obviously, some other people would stop me and they'd jump on me and, you know, try and pry it away from me. And it would probably take five or six to really, you know, secure me away from that. But they would say, what are you doing? I just didn't like the way he looked this morning. Well, that doesn't make any sense in the world. Why would you inflict pain on another person for no reason whatsoever? Even if somebody wasn't a Christian, take God out of the equation. Normal, you know, Joe sitting right over here, he's going to see a problem with somebody inflicting pain on someone else for no reason. And he's going to have a moral obligation to do something about it. What I'm here to tell you is that that was given to us all of humanity. That moral argument, that conscience of right and wrong was given to us by God. The fact that we have that, the fact that we feel those things, even though we choose to do what's wrong, the fact that in general people understand that lying is not right and cheating is not right and murdering somebody isn't right. That is a conscience that is given to us all by God. The book of Romans chapter 2 verse 15 says this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So this is in the context of people, not even necessarily just the people of God that know right and wrong, but this is everybody. They've got something seared on their heart that the animal kingdom does not have, right? A couple weeks ago, David Amen, one of, our, one of our staff, and I were working on some stuff in the, in the church office that you saw right there, and we saw a fox run by in the field. And it was awesome. It was just kind of like trotting, like in rhythm. It was like the sweetest thing. Like, holy cow, there's a fox. But this fox, I mean, how do foxes exist? How do they live? By pretty much murdering other little animals, Right? They're stealing eggs and they're breaking into the chicken coop and they're snatching up little chicks, as in little tiny birds. And they're like, you know, that's how they live. Now, nobody's going to take that fox and put it on trial for murder or for kidnapping. Because animals don't have a moral conscience. We do as human beings. And that by itself is an argument that there is a moral lawgiver that has given us that sense. Number two, the cosmological argument. This is an argument of cause. As you look at the atmosphere, as you look at the planets, as you look at the solar systems, you recognize that things are moving, things are in motion, things have happened. And the logic says, well, if things are moving, there must have been a mover. All of this that we see is a cause, so there must have been a cause for that cause and that cause and that cause. Somewhere down the line, there must have been something or someone that caused all of that to go into motion. And the classic illustration there is called the turtle on a fence post. If you're walking through the woods and you see a turtle on top of a fence post, what's your conclusion? Well, it didn't always exist there. How would that even be possible? Don't think it could really climb up there. I know it couldn't climb up there. Someone must have put the turtle on the fence post. Some very cruel person, now that I think about it. <laughs> Somebody had to put that there. 
the cosmological argument. Number three, the teleological argument is what it's classically known as. And this is basically an argument of design. It's not just existence, like something had to cause it, but it's one step even further than that, an argument of design. If I'm walking along the North Carolina shore and all of a sudden I see an Apple MacBook computer right there, holy cow, that's awesome. Wow, look at this. I'll open it up, the light turns on, little Apple thing, all the keys are there. I'm like, wow, this thing really works. That is so sweet. I think I'll just keep it or do the right thing and call somebody and tell them. But the point is, if somebody came along and said to you, hey, you know what? The way that computer was made was there was just a bunch of sand and the lapping of the waves that just continually started to do that on each other. And that's how the outside shell was formed and all those little things inside, all the ram and everything were just kind of formed by some seashells that got in there. And then like there was a, a bolt of lightning that came and gave it the electricity so that when you open it up, that's how it turns on. And all of those keys with all the lettering on there that just kind of randomly happened, you'd say you're crazy. It's really obvious that there was intricate design that somebody had to lay all this stuff out, hook all this stuff up, and, and cause this to work. Well, when we look at our universe, when we look at our own beings, when we look at our bodies, when we look at our eyes, or the fact that we have a heart, or we've got a circular system, and we've got a muscular system, and the intricate design even of the human body, the same exact thing can be said. It's so obvious that, that, that somebody fashioned this. And the last one is called the fine-tuning argument. And that's an argument from chance. A fine-tuning argument. And the picture is given of some big, massive piece of electronics that's got all these different dials. And every single dial has to be at the exact right tuning for life on this planet to take place. In some of my research, it just blows my mind. And some of you guys are much smarter than me in the scientific realm. But in the research that I did, there's over 75 different requirements, intricate, fine-tuning requirements that, that are necessary to have life on this earth. It has to do with the axis tilts of the earth, the thickness of the earth's crust, CO2 and ozone levels in the atmosphere, the mass and the size of the earth, the rotational period, the gravitational forces, and you can go on and on and on and on and on, over 75 of them. If just one of them was just slightly off, we would not have life on this planet. Listen to this. The earth is a very specific distance from the sun. Dr. Malcolm Bowden says, if it were 5% closer, then the water would boil up from the oceans. And if it were just 1% farther away, then the oceans would freeze. It's unbelievable to think about the fine-tuning, the absolute precision fine-tuning that had to happen in order for us to have life as we know it on this planet. And one philosopher said, if you took any one of these, and there's, there's dozens more, I just chose four. If you took any one of these by itself, it's almost like a bucket that maybe had a hole in it because there's different things that you could say about either one of these collectively. But he said, man, when you take those buckets and put it on top of those buckets and put it on top of those buckets, even if they might have one hole in them, pretty soon there's gonna be a whole lot of water in there that you're gonna have to deal with. Evidence for a God. So if we understand like, okay, well, I believe that, man, there must be something. Well, how do we know who he is? How do we know what he's like? We've marked down some characteristics that we want to go over about who God 
is, and there's a lot of scripture here that I'm going to read for you, but again, these are going to be on the screen. I encourage you to take them down and, and, uh, and continue to study them, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the characteristics of who this great God is. There's 25, or there's 30, or there's more than that that we could have talked about, and honestly, this is the kind of series that could go a whole entire year, but for our purposes this morning, we've just chosen seven to talk about, and in God's sovereignty, maybe... One of these is what you needed to hear this morning. The first one that we want to talk about is that God is eternal. God is unchanging. God is eternal and unchanging. In the book of Psalms, chapter 90, verse 2, it says this. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God uncreated one. That's what the creed says, right? Everybody else here was created. You had a start date. You were born. You had a beginning. It says in scripture that God is from everlasting to everlasting. And I know that absolutely blows our mind, goes back to that opening illustration, like, man, I wish I could explain it, and, but I can't. I don't have the capacity to. We're limited in our thinking, but we know that God always was and God always will be. We will not always be. I don't know if that's a news flash for, for anybody here this morning, but I think sometimes it's good to be reminded that what we're doing right now, another day that we have to live and to breathe and to, and to speak and to converse, these are limited. I've got a timer right up there as we do every single week that says here's much, how much time you have left before you need to be done with the message and we need to get on with the other thing. You've seen those before when you're at a concert or you're at some test and there's a time, you know, and you know what we're talking about. There's one of those going on on your life right now. The character of God is that he goes from everlasting to everlasting. Now we will be going to everlasting. We're not going to live forever in this, in this body, but we are eternal beings and we're going to be spending eternity somewhere either with God or away from God. But God is everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting, the scripture says, unchanging. Second part of that, in James, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shifting of shadows. He does not change. Number two, secondary characteristic of God. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Omnipotent. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus is speaking. He says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. When you think about how powerful God is to even speak into existence all the planets and all the solar systems and fine-tune it all so that we can live and breathe at the macro level. You think about what he's done in other galaxies, in other universes. And then you think even about the micro level, about the power of God in daily living, in interaction with people. I tell you, even read in the New Testament in Jesus about his life and, and how he defied the laws of nature so many times. And he was so creative in the way he did it, in the way he showed his power, right? When he healed people, when he raised people from the dead, sometimes he was right there with them and he said, be healed. Sometimes he just spoke the word and it was done. Sometimes the sick person was miles away and he healed them that way. Sometimes he spit on the ground and made a little paste and he used it that way. 
He defied nature and showed his power in so many different ways, it's unbelievable. He's an all-powerful, omnipotent God. Number three, he's all-knowing. Omniscient is the term that we use for it. Psalm 139 says this, the psalmist says, well, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I don't know what that does for you here this morning. Maybe for some of you, you're like, that's a negative thing. I don't want God to be with me wherever I am. You know, maybe your picture of God's kind of like your grandpa. You know, who you see every now and again, you know, and, and you interact with them and you're nice and you're pleasant and you're polite. And then you leave and that's who you really are, right? That resonating with anybody here. But man, the idea that God is with you always, maybe you don't like that because you don't want to be bringing God to the situations that you're involved in. But I just want to throw out to you this morning that to recognize that God is everywhere and that he is sovereign and that he is all-knowing he's not bound by time and space like we are is an incredible comfort and an incredible relief because I know whatever circumstance I'm in or what circumstance you're in as difficult and as dark as it may be you know that God is there with you it's not just when you're here in church on Sunday he's always with you he's omniscient number four he is truth. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It says there's two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We can know that what he says here and what, what, uh, what he's promised he will do, it is out of his character to lie. He is truth, that's part of his character, and he is bound by his character. Number five, he is holy. Psalm 145, verse 17 says this, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways. He is kind in all of his works. First Peter chapter one, verse 16, where repeated the command from the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. This characteristic of God carries around the idea that he is totally separate and set apart for a special use. And as we think about that as part of God's character and we think about ourselves in, in relation to that, there's a whole vast chasm between us as we think about his holiness and our unrighteousness. Number six, he is just. Isaiah 30 says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God is a God of justice. He will do what is right according to his character. The last one that we want to talk about is that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The defining characteristic of who he is is given to us right there now we're going to tackle these seven again in just a second but I need to share with you that as I was studying this week and as I was as I was pouring over some of these characteristics there was an old hymn that came to my mind 
that God reminded me of. And it was a situation where it was later on in the week. It wasn't practical to call Bill up and say, hey, can you guys switch out a song? You know, they'd already practiced and it just didn't, it wasn't going to work to sing the song. But that's okay because sometimes I think when you dwell on the lyrics of a song, even outside of the music, they'll give you additional impacting truth more than if you just sang it the way you've always sung it. So as I was thinking about the character of God, I was thinking about our people and what are we going through? I kind of got the picture that we're living in difficulty and limping along and trying to do what's right, but we're constantly being attacked by the enemy. And I pictured the character of God being like a giant shield that goes in front of us. And the words to that great hymn came to my mind that says, A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. When you think about a mighty fortress, you think about a big stone wall that people can hide behind. I'm not quite sure what a bulwark is, but I know, man, if I'm going to be hiding behind a bulwark, I don't want a failing bulwark, a crumbling bulwark. I want one that's never failing and one that's going to be able to protect me and guide me as I hide behind it. And sometimes I think that the reason that we come to church should not be for, hey, let me give you three easy answers about how to deal with this problem in your life. Sometimes the best answer is to rest in the character of who God is and to crouch down and to hide behind that and let that be your protector. When we can't see the easy answers and when they seem trite, that's probably because they are. So what I want to do is I want to go over these seven things again and I want to talk about comparing this character of God compared to our character and I'll just put myself in it and say my character. So let's start out with number one. It says he is eternal. He's unchanging. What about me? What about you? We're temporary. We're burning out. Our timeline is ticking and we are also woefully inconsistent. I mean, there are times where I'm living large and I'm feeling like I'm a good dad. I've done some good things and I'm a good husband and I'm trying to be a good pastor and you're feeling all right. And then there's the next week where you just feel like I'm a complete failure in every single thing that I try. But God is incredibly consistent. He's unchanging. He's not like us. He's omnipotent. We are limited. We're weak That's why God reminds us in Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not grow tired or weary. Amen to that? But he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So those who wait on him will mount up and rise up like eagles on eagles' wings. They will have strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. How about number three? He's omniscient. And all-knowing, us, we're ignorant and we're assuming. Man, I just loved it when we sang that song, Sovereign, because that clarifies it for us. Because even though you're looking out at your situation and you don't see, you don't understand, ignorant, maybe willfully or, you know, even by accident, but it's like, God, I don't understand. Here's what I see. Here's what I want. But to recognize God's omniscience that he sees way beyond that. You can rest in that and you can hide behind that. 
Number four, he is truth. We are full of deceit. He is holy and we're so unrighteous. He is just and we are guilty. He is love and we are loved. I just want to read this um, series of statements to you that I crafted to kind of help us understand where we're headed in this character of God and what it looks like. And the band can go ahead and start to come out and get ready for us to close with a, with a declaration of who God is. But think about this and listen to this. My health is failing. When they're not sure how much time I have left and when my body is broken and aching from the physical activity that used to come so easily. Anybody with me on that one? When the daily look in the mirror and the laugh lines and the gray reminds me of my plight and my state, even though I am fading and burning out, he is eternal. I'm not what I used to be, but he is unchanging. I feel inadequate, unsure, timid, worn down, but he is omnipotent. I am anxious, fearful, and afraid of the future. I'm not sure why I'm here, why I'm working where I'm working, why I have this physical ailment, why I feel so defeated, but he is omniscient. I get angry at my own deception. The parade and the charade, the impressions and the depressions, the image on Facebook or fake book and Insta-sham. When I'm so full of deceit, he is the truth. I struggle in my brokenness. I stumble in my lust, but he is holy. I know that evil must be punished. I worry about the world and if good really will triumph over evil, but he is just. I know I don't deserve to be hiding here, but he is love. His banner over me is love. As part of this series, what we want to do each week is we want to talk about these hinges and what doors it opens and what doors it closes. What door does this theology of God close for us? Well, it closes the door that says there can be a God of your own invention. Because that's where most of America is. Oh, I like this little piece of God. I like that little piece. And I really love this little characteristic. So I'm just going to kind of weave those things that I really love. And I'm just going to create the God of my own invention. He's a lot like me and he's super forgiving. And, you know, but I'm going to create him. This shuts the door on that. Can't do that. What door does it open for us? It opens the door that says this great God allows himself to be known. He's inviting you in. The book of Acts chapter 17 verse 27 says this. And he that is God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on earth on the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. We serve a God that is inviting us to come know him. He's saying to us, according to Psalm 139, I know you already. I created you. I formed you. I fashioned you. I know you. I want to invite you in through this door to know me. 
And once you know me, and once you rest in me, and once you rely on me, and once you even catch a poor glimpse, barely scratching the surface of who I am, you'll recognize that the solution is that you just rest and crouch down behind that shield. Came across this verse that just solidified it all for me. Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, David says, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. So I don't know what you walked in with this morning, but I know whatever it is, and however you're perhaps crouching down in shame or in fear, God's saying, I've got my shield, my bulwark, my fortress right here in front of you. Oh, and by the way, I'm the lifter of your head. Look at me. Gaze into my eyes and rest in who I am. I am here. That's the God that we serve. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we just thank you for who you are. And Lord, even if we caught just a tiny little instantaneous glimpse of that, let it impact us, God. Let us not walk out of here the same that we walked in, God. Let us walk out as different people, changed and transformed by who you are. So we love you, God. Let us rest in that. And God, be pleased as we declare who you are right now with joy in our hearts. Yes, God, be pleased. In your son's name we pray.